We are in John 17 again, John 17, page 1073 in your pew Bible. If you choose to use that this morning, we do encourage you always to have a Bible open, God's Word, and to follow by looking at the text that we're examining this morning. And of course, that is John 17, verses 1 through 5. This is the last sermon we'll have on those verses before moving on to the second part of that prayer, beginning in verse 6 through 19. But we know that as Jesus prays, he is praying to his Father. And in these verses, particularly, he is praying to his Father for himself. The cross is immediately before him. The hour, as you see in our text, he acknowledges has now come. Previously in John, he says many times over, the hour has not yet come, the hour is not yet. But now he says, as he anticipates the coming cross, that the hour has indeed come. And it is an hour that has been set, we know, from eternity past within the counsel of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, when he prays, is praying to his Father with that aim in view and with the cross before him. We've already noted many things about this prayer by way of introduction and in our recent studies. We've seen, for instance, that Jesus prays out loud, and that seems insignificant, but it's not. It's very important. He prays out loud for the benefit of his own disciples and Because they heard that prayer and wrote it down under God's inspiration, it is for us and for our comfort as well to know that our Savior indeed ever lives to make intercession for us. We noted that this is the prayer of a righteous son, effectual and fervent in every way. His prayer is heard, the whole of it, as he prays then and as he prays now. It is centered upon the theme of eternal life, which we looked at last week. Eternal life that will come through the work that he will accomplish, as he himself says. He's already accomplished it. It was as good as done because he was faithful to do all the Father had given him to do. And so this theme of eternal life, that they might know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, and that they might have life through him is really the theme of this prayer. The aim, the ultimate aim, of course, as Jesus himself speaks in these verses, is for the glory of his Father. The Son delights in the Father, delights to do all that the Father had given him to do. This was not a task that was forced upon him. This was a son who was willing, when the father determined to save a people, a son who was willing to come and to pay the ultimate price to give his very life for that people. And this is a prayer, of course, that is one that we overhear between the father and the son, an intra-within-the-trinity prayer. It's taking place in many ways in the very midst of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we enter and study this with great trepidation because we are really stepping on and entering into holy ground. And that really will be part of the focus of our sermon this morning, this aspect of learning that this is a prayer between the Father and the Son as they speak together about these things. 
This morning, we turn to one final element of this first section that will take us even deeper into the mystery of God's work to save sinners through the work of his son, through the cross of Calvary. Back in 2010, R.C. Sproul preached a series of sermons on the Gospel of John. And in a sermon that he preached on this first section of Jesus' prayer, verses 1 through 5, which he entitled The Glory of Christ, he told his congregation that this text, John 17, 1 through 5, is what he refers to as a church emptier. A church emptier. Now, if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, you know what he means by that. He means that there is a doctrine, particularly in these verses, that has a tendency to empty churches very quickly. A doctrine that people by nature do not like. And that when a man decides to preach through this passage instead of skipping over it, as many do, they risk people leaving the church because of it. I don't want to scare you. I trust none of you will leave the church because of this this morning. But I think what he says is true in many ways and in broad ways in our day today. It's very similar, as we noted last week, from the passage in John chapter 6. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, the very passage we read about Jesus bringing the bread from heaven. And you know what he went on to say, right? You have to eat this bread. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood if you're going to have eternal life. Now, we need to study that passage, and I think we all have some sense of what Jesus was really teaching. He wasn't endorsing cannibalism, of course, but his sayings were hard. They were difficult, especially for the natural man or the natural people who had no understanding of the things of the Spirit who were following him. They finally lost their tolerance of this teacher, and they began to leave. And you remember in John chapter 6, as we noted last week, he turns to his disciples and he said, will you also leave me? And Peter, answering for the others, said, of course, we will not. To whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Regardless of what you may think or understand about this doctrine that we're going to talk about this morning, I trust you will not quickly leave because of it but rather understand that Jesus alone possesses the words of eternal life. What R.C. Sproul said, he said because of this passage and these verses, really verse 2 in the passage before us, since you have given him, that is Jesus saying, since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. This passage highlights what we refer to as the doctrine of election or predestination, the doctrine most often associated with Calvinism that teaches from all eternity past, God the Father chose a people in Christ to redeem, and that the Son came in the fullness of time to accomplish the work of salvation for that people chosen by the Father. It is a passage that is here in our text again in John 17, 1 through 5. It's in that context of the larger prayer. So please stand as we read these verses again. John 17, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven 
And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have so preserved it that we may enter into, as it were, the very center of the life of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we might hear the Son conversing with the Father and hear him speaking about this great salvation which you have purposed in him. Thank you that you have made us who believe in Christ part of that great story and pray your blessing now upon us as we enter into it together, as we hear these words, as we seek to understand them. Grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As the men who are training for office, whether it be for deacon or elder, we met this past week after somewhat of a lapse of time because of God's providence and schedules. It's been several weeks since we were able to meet. And as we met this past Thursday, we had the privilege together to sort of walk through together, uh, to talk about together, uh, our Confession of Faith, Chapter 3 which deals with the, the, degree, the decrees of God, God's sovereign decrees. Uh, all of those doctrines are rooted, including election, in this understanding that our God is sovereign over all things, that, that he is king over all nations, that he is the ruler over everything, that he does as he pleases among the children of men, that, that doctrine of his sovereignty so rich and so comfortable or so comforting to us as believers is really at the heart of what chapter 3 is about when he talks about the decrees of God. But then as we studied and worked through it together, we moved our way from the general doctrine of God's sovereignty to the specific doctrine of his sovereignty in salvation. And the logic is very clear. If God is indeed sovereign, then there is no area of anything, any area at all, that he is not sovereign over. And that includes salvation and the work of salvation, which he alone accomplishes. And so later in chapter 3, this is the language that our forefathers use when they're trying to sort of gather from all of the scripture what the teaching of the Bible is on this understanding of election or predestination. Now, it's a, it's a mindful, if you will, so listen carefully and follow as the Lord reveals to us these truths through this means. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, and according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, 
has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love and without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or anything other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Now that's a lot. But the summary is fairly straightforward and simple. That is that God in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, chose a people in Jesus Christ and united them to him, as it were, before the foundation of the world. And he did that without any reference or any foresight of what those people particularly would do. So he did not do it as he looked down and said, well, so-and-so, Ted's going to believe in Jesus in 1980. And so because I already know that, then in eternity past, I'm going to choose Ted because Ted's going to choose me. That's not what he does. It is merely out of his good pleasure, it says, with no conditions set upon him to do so. Freely he chooses, out of his free grace, and love. That is a good summary, I think, of the doctrine of election. Now, what I love about that chapter is that the very last part of it, the very last section of chapter 3, acknowledges right up front that this doctrine is of a high mystery and is to be handled with special prudence and care. We are not Calvinists who simply like to bash people over the head about election and predestination. We don't use it as a tool to, to compel people or to press them into our way of seeing things. We, we acknowledge that this is a high mystery, yet one that the, that the Bible clearly presents. And so our desire is to handle it with great care, to examine it as it is recorded for us in God's word to yield our obedience to it and our submission to it as we do all things to God who alone is sovereign. And so this doctrine becomes for us not something to use as a tool to bludgeon others, but as a means and a source of great comfort leading to humility in our lives as we sang in that first great hymn, Why Was It, Lord, That I Was Chosen to Be a Guest? That's the humility that this doctrine speaks of, and it speaks as well of an abundant consolation to those who are united to Jesus Christ, leading us not only to obey him in all things, but to worship him and to give him glory. Now, I'm very grateful in that study this past week for the men that God has raised up whom you have nominated to be trained as elders and deacons. These are all men who are humbled under this doctrine, not arrogant, understand it, but understand it to their own consolation and encouragement and desire that all of us together would grow in that comfort as we wrestle with these things. So it is with great care then that we want to examine this passage together with an aim of not emptying our church, but of glorifying our great God for the salvation that he has accomplished in Christ from first to last.
Salvation, all of it, is of the Lord. I've divided then this text into three sections. It's helpful this way, at least for me. And it really comes directly out of the language that we have here in the ESV. The first thing we see then is that all authority, Jesus says, is given to the Son. Now, this is the basis from which Jesus has the right and a power to give eternal life to sinners. It is because all authority has been given to him. Now, we know that this has a primary reference to an authority. You'll notice the language is in the past tense. It has been given to Jesus, an authority placed, if you will, in his hands. Now, what is this referring to? Obviously, Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, being God himself, possesses by nature and right all authority. But, but this is something unique that the Father has, as you, as it were, given to Jesus in his incarnation, in his humiliation, as he comes and takes on our human flesh. He is given by the Father an authority. Another word is power, a power to give eternal life. Well, one theologian, as we wrestle through this, says this, and I found this to be very helpful. This, they write, is a reference to an authority and power given to Jesus as the covenant head of the entire human race. Notice the language is authority over all flesh. And while that would include all non-human flesh, if you will, even the animals, it has primary reference here to human beings. That's the, the primary focus in reference. But he is given that authority as the covenant head of the human race as the second Adam come in humility a covenant head endowed with power and authority so that the salvation of every human being is in his hands. It is his right to give salvation to whom he wills. Now, he himself in this prayer, as we'll see and throughout the scriptures, will limit in whom he wills or to whom he wills to those that the Father has given to him. But the authority to give that salvation, that life, which is found in him, has been given to him by the Father. As I was studying this week, there were several commentators that noted, and I thought about this, I said, this is really interesting because it's true. When we, when we sing our hymns at Christmas, so many of them talking about Jesus as what? A newborn king. Now, now we know he came in humility and the circumstances of his birth were not worthy of his kingship, of who he really is. But the, the point is, as we sing those hymns, that we're acknowledging that he comes, even in his humility as our Savior, in his incarnation as a king. Let earth, joy to the world says, let earth receive her king. He already possesses authority over all flesh. He comes as their king, calling them to submit to him. Now, we know that this authority that he was given by the Father will be fully seen and fully experienced in Jesus 
as he is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. There, Daniel 7 will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus as he comes to the Father, the Ancient of Days, and receives a kingdom and the authority that is related to that kingdom. That will be the full expression of this. But, but the authority itself and the very beginning of this rule of Christ is that he might have the power to give eternal life. He possesses that authority. Now, we see this in Jesus' own ministry, don't we? After his resurrection, before his ascension, he gathers his disciples, doesn't he, in, uh, on the mountain, and he tells them what? Remember his first words? All authority. All authority has been given unto me, he says. Therefore, go into all the world. That authority, which Jesus continues to exercise, as by the Spirit, men and women are subdued and brought to faith in Jesus. That's the work of Jesus, who possesses all authority, granting salvation, eternal life to all whom he will. And that authority in Acts 1 and in Matthew 28 has been given to Jesus. So this passage is a reference to that authority, an authority that he possesses as our Savior. And when he came in humiliation and as he lived his life in this world and now as he lives uh, that life before the Father in heaven, he continues to exercise that authority that has been given to him. Now that becomes the foundation then of everything else that we're going to talk about this morning. He possesses, he's been given by the Father that authority over all flesh. He has a right to do as he pleases. That is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of the Son as well. Secondly, notice it is the right and the power and authority to give eternal life. That authority is given for a reason, that he might give eternal life. Now that refers to everything we talked about last week. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is life through the Son that the Father has given. And that life, that eternal life, is everything necessary for salvation. There's not a thing missing. The work is all of Christ from beginning to end. So when he gives eternal life, it is the fullness of that life that we're talking about. It is as Romans 8 so beautifully says to us with regard to these doctrines of foreknowledge and predestination, etc. It is that wonderful golden chain that we find in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, knew beforehand, and the, the, the word know or knowledge here is, is a reference to intimate knowledge, not just know about something, but to really know someone. He knew them he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It's often been said, why is it that he jumps past sanctification, past all the things of this life to glory? It is because the salvation that he accomplished is already finished. It's done. And we are so certain of being with him in glory, glorified in his presence because of that work, because all of it depends only on him and nothing on us. When he said it is finished on the cross, it was finished. 
There's nothing for us to add. So that is the the eternal life that he grants to all of those whom the Father has given to him. Before we move off of this point, notice the emphasis upon the word there, to give. To give eternal life. It is not given in response to something given to him. It is simply a gift. It is the free gift of his grace. The verses read earlier from Ephesians 1 emphasizes that, as does in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even faith, the reaching out of a beggar to receive The free gift of salvation is a gift of God. It is granted to those whom he chooses that they might believe and embrace the promises given to them and given to us in Jesus Christ. All of this Jesus possesses as a power and authority given to him to give freely to those whom he chooses because the salvation of all flesh lays in his hands And he chooses as he decides and determines. And we're told how that is. It is in accordance with all that the Father has given to him. That is his aim, his purpose, his focus. And that leads us then to the final point, which is the heart of all of this. And that is this phrase that we find here. To all whom the Father gave to him. This power to give eternal life is directed to all whom the Father gave to him. Not to every individual who has ever lived, to every person who has ever walked on this earth, but only with an aim and a purpose to those whom the Father has given to him. One of the truly wonderful things that I've noted several times as we study this prayer is that it gives us a glimpse, small as it is, into the inner workings and inner dialogue of the Trinity, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are, as it were, sitting and listening. We're listening in on how the Father speaks to the Son and how the Son speaks to the Father with respect to this great work of salvation, which is the central issue of the whole Bible. So when we speak as human beings, brothers and sisters in Christ, about the work of God's salvation on our behalf, what he accomplished, we have a language that we use, don't we? We we speak using terms that come from the Bible that God reveals to us. We speak of things like grace, God's free favor. We speak of things like faith and repentance, conversion. We speak of redemption, the purchasing and the buying back. We speak of deeper doctrines like justification, sanctification. We speak of holiness of life. We, we use those terms because they're biblical terms. They're, they're terms that God gave to us to help us to understand what it is that he did 
and our experience of it together. They're terms that Christians throw about. And sometimes one of the hardest things for people when they first begin to visit a church, they have no church background, is they they say, boy, you Christians just use all of this language and I don't really understand it. And, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. It just means we need to be careful to, to bring people along to help them understand the riches of his grace to us in Jesus. These are, are important biblical terms. They're drawn from the Bible. And they help us sort of put an understanding on this work of God's grace in our lives. They help us to tell the story of what God has done for us. And that is really important. But how does the father speak to the son about these things? How does the son speak to the father about these things? What language do they use when they speak to one another about this work of salvation? Have you ever thought about that? Well, the Bible's full of the language that they use. John 17 is but one place where we see the language that they use. When Jesus speaks to the Father, he speaks this way. He speaks, as verse 2 says, I'm giving eternal life to all that you have given to me. He's referencing a time in eternity past when between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, a people were chosen And that people were united to Christ at that time and given to Jesus as a gift. That's how they think about it. That's how they talk about it. I'm not trying to be in any way disrespectful or enter into things that are beyond our ability to understand. I'm saying when they, the Father and the Son, speak to one another, this is how they speak. And it's not just in verse 2. Look further with me. Verse 6 I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me. A little later, which you, verse 11, have given me. Then a little further, verse or or 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They, a particular people, are not of this world. Verse 20, where his aim shifts, not to his disciples, but to those who will believe. I do not ask for these disciples only, not counting the one, the son of destruction, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. You see, this is his language throughout. And it's not just in John chapter 17. You go back to John chapter 10. It's especially in John So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? Verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, we don't have time. I could go through a ton of passages where this is the language they use. Language of election, language of a before the foundation of the world choosing and uniting to Christ. There's a beautiful passage in Hebrews chapter 2. If you know the flow of Hebrews, you know he's comparing Jesus to the angels, to Moses, and then to the priesthood of the old covenant. And Jesus, in every case, is far better. Listen to the language in verse 10 through 13 of Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, the son now appearing before the father, behold, I am the children God has given to me. Now, the point here is important to understand. Uh, this is true of the Old Testament. We can go through passages like Isaiah 43, which talk about a people that God is, is seeing, a people in Christ, as he calls them chosen of God. Isaiah 42, which talks about that eternal covenant in time past, eternity past, that covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. There are so many other texts to add from Old and New Testament that say that when the Father and the Son speak about this salvation... They speak in this way, a people given to the Son by the Father, that that Son would come and pay a price for them and fulfill their salvation fully, completely. The work is finished in Jesus Christ. This is so important for us to understand that when we're given this insight into the very heart of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, this is the way they speak about this. And it's to our great comfort that they do. So what are we saying in all of this as we put all of this together? We're saying exactly what Jesus says to his father. As he thanks the father for the authority that was given to him to give salvation to those whom he pleases to give it in accordance with all of those that the father has given to the son. In eternity past, God chose a people, not based on anything in those people, but merely out of his free grace and good pleasure, and to the praise of his glorious grace, that that people would be redeemed out of sinful humanity, and that the Son would come for those people that the Father has given to him, that he would give his life for those people the Father had given to him, pay the price required for those people, that the Father had given to him, and that he would do so to completion, nothing left to be done, so that that people would have the comfort of the knowledge that they belong to Jesus, and there is no one who can take them out of his hands. That is what God did. That is what Jesus prays. And his whole focus is bringing to fulfillment everything that was determined in eternity past. That's why he came 
That's why it's called the hour and the fullness of time. Because there has always been a purpose and a plan in the mind of God. And it was to save a people and to give a people as a gift to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, I know, is one of those sermons that can unsettle us. Because perhaps for some of you this morning, these are doctrines you've not either thought much about or perhaps have never even heard or been exposed to. And so because of that, I think it is a sermon that lends it very clearly for me to apply this in two ways to two groups of people. To those here this morning that may be, for instance, unbelievers who are outside of Jesus Christ, who are here perhaps visiting or here perhaps for many years and hearing these things but have never yielded to Christ and come to obey the gospel by believing in him. And so a word to unbelievers. It has been rightly said that this doctrine of God's sovereign election of a people to save for whom Christ died offends us at every level like no other doctrine does. You know the cry when you usually talk to someone about this. Unfair, unkind, unloving. How could God, who is supposed to be love ever, just choose some and not all? And those of you who have wrestled with this understand that. You understand how those questions can arise. Some of the men on Thursday night as we talked immediately said, and it's one of the responses we need to give, uh, our beginning place with that cry is wrong. We don't begin with what God is, has to do, right? We don't begin what God has to do because he's a loving God. We begin with the reality of who we are, rebels of God, and the fact that God doesn't have to choose any single individual and no single individual at all, that his justice would have been served and satisfied completely to the glory of his name if he didn't choose anyone because we all deserve condemnation and hell because of our sin and rebellion against him. So the focus needs to be on the fact that this is an expression of his grace to sinners, that he would choose any. To those who struggle with this doctrine, perhaps unbelievers this morning, I love these words of Matthew Poole. They're very important for us to hear. We need not, he says, We need not ascend up to heaven to search the roles of the eternal counsels of God. All whom the Father hath given to Christ shall come to Christ and not only receive him as priest, but give thanks, but give themselves up to be ruled and quickened by him. By such a receiving of Christ, we shall know whether we are of the number of those that are given to Christ. You know what he's saying? We, we, we are never called to discern, to understand, to search the roles of the eternal counsels of God. We're never commanded to figure out if we're elect. The command is simple. Come to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The Lord himself said that in John chapter 6, a passage read earlier. You may remember Those words, again, as Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, listen to what he says. 
all that the Father gives me, this is the way they talk, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, if he stopped there, that would have been fine, because that's the way the Father and the Son speak. Everything given to him, all will come and none will be lost. But then he adds this, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you want to know whether or not you are of the elect, the question is, have you come to believe in Jesus? If you have come to believe in Jesus, to obey him and to submit to him, to trust in him, then you are of the elect. The great hymn in our hymnal, we don't sing it often, but the words are beautiful and they're anonymous. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much I that took hold of thee as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but, oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul and thou hast always lovest me. And that love goes all the way back to eternity. The comfort of which we so often speak that this doctrine holds out is a comfort that it only holds out to those who have come to believe in him. Until then, it is an obscene, hated doctrine until the Lord subdues our hearts And when he does, it becomes the sweetest of doctrines because the comfort he brings is part and parcel of eternal life. And so you need, if you're here this morning, you need to hear those gracious words of Jesus. He doesn't ask you to go and figure out if you're elect. He doesn't say to you, go and discern and figure out these things. He just says this, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to him then. Come to him and know the rest that he so freely gives. If you are a believer this morning, then take great comfort in these things, even if you may not be able to plumb the depths of this great truth. I remember, I don't know how long ago, I remember looking up my name, you know, we're curious, what's my name mean? You got those books. And so I looked up my name and I found that my name means gift of God. Well, a man can become quite conceited with that meaning. But I discovered soon after that, as I read through books, that there are a lot of names that mean gift of God. I think it's a catch-all. I think it's like, we don't know what this means, but 
gift of God sounds good. Now, every child is a precious gift of God, precious gift of God. And we've rejoiced recently and will rejoice, we trust again, at those precious gifts gifts he has given to so many within our congregation. But know this, believer, and this is our comfort, isn't it? You were given as a gift to God the Son in eternity past when God chose you in Christ. You were known by God. You were set apart for salvation that Christ would come and secure. Remember those words from John 10. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, that's how they talk to each other, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, I don't know about you, but being in the hand of God who rules all things and the hand of Christ who was pierced for our salvation, I don't want to be found in any other place but there. And there is where we have the security and peace that he promises and belongs to those who are chosen in Christ. To be known by the Father, given to the Son as a gift, is our greatest comfort in this life. When J.I. Packer wrote Knowing God, he said early on in that book, and I think he's right, he said this, We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us, bringing us to know him by making his love known to us. Our knowing God was the consequence of God's taking knowledge of us first. They know him, we know him by faith, because he first singled us out by his grace. What matters supremely, he says, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God. That's what his book is called. He sa- it's a, that's not the most important thing, he says. But the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off of me and his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, where his care will ever falter. Do you see the security and the peace and the comfort and the joy that is ours in Christ? A people given to the Son as a gift in eternity past for whom the Son came and died and paid the price necessary. All glory, all glory to God alone. It was 22 years ago this week on June 15, 2000, that James Montgomery Boyce went home to be with his Savior. Less than a year before his death, Dr. Boyce began working on a series of hymns. There would be 12 published in a small book called Hymns for a Modern Reformation. We've often used it, and it also includes two wonderful children's hymns. The one hymn that stands at the head of all of these hymns is the one we will conclude our service with this morning. We've sung it many times. It was also the first one that he wrote, and it's entitled, Give Praise to God. It's a fitting hymn to end our study of this section of John 17. 
Dr. Boyce was passionate about giving glory to God in all things as we see Christ pray in these first five verses where he speaks of wanting to glorify the Father through the work that the Father gave him to do. And as we consider that great work and the Savior who accomplished it, there is only one response that grateful hearts can express. Come, lift up your voice to heaven's high throne and glory give to God alone. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you as a people set apart, given as a gift to the Son, that we can hear the Son pray for us, that we can hear him talk to you, our Father, about a people given by you to him for whom he came to suffer and die, that we would be numbered among them is our greatest joy And we pray that our hearts would be filled to overflowing with praise. For you alone deserve all glory and praise and honor. We pray with thanksgiving all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.